All right, we're going to start this morning with a video. So go ahead and show it, guys. This is the first time that we've been attacked on our soil. First time, and by far, the worst results. And I fear, as Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, said yesterday, that this is only the beginning, and with biological warfare available to these monsters, the Husseins, the Bin Ladens, the, uh, the, the Arafats, uh, what we saw on Tuesday, as terrible as it is, could be minuscule if in fact if in fact God continues to lift the curtain and allow the enemies of America to give us probably what we deserve. Well, Jerry, that's my feeling. I think we've just seen the, the antechamber to terror. We haven't even begun to see what they can do to the major population. I mean, the ACLU, uh, the ACLU's got to take a lot of blame for this. Oh yeah. And I know I'll hear from them for this, but uh, throwing God or successfully with the help of the federal court system, throwing God out of the public square, out of the schools. Uh, the abortionists have got to bear some burden for this because uh, God will not be mocked and when we destroy 40 million little innocent babies, we make God mad. I, I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, People for the American Way, all of them who tried to secularize America, I point the thing in their face and say, you helped this happen. Well, I, I totally concur. So in case you missed it at the beginning of that, that was two days after September 11th. Two days that was broadcast on the 700 Club on cable after the events of September, uh, September 11th. It's pretty wild. I mean, those are controversial words to hear today. To hear them then, two days after September the, the 11th, uh, honestly, it's almost unthinkable to know that that was said in, in that way. And, and, and let me tell you, every single time, if you are, all right, so I'm, I'm, I'm 43, so I'm going to say like my, maybe like 40 and older, you know that's Jerry Falwell, and you know that uh, at, at every time that there was a national tragedy, uh, he ended up, or, or someone very much like him, ended up on the 700 Club or Larry King Live or uh, one of these programs, and they were asked this question, some variation of this question, why did this happen, or where was God in all of this, and how is this, uh, how is a, a good God allow horrible things like this to happen, and they would, they would put them on TV, and, and inevitably there would be some version of what was just said uh, that was put out there. This one's a little more direct than a lot of those answers often were, uh, but they were that they were very, very similar. And at first blush, this line of thinking uh, to our ears seems uh, honestly unthinkable that somebody would say something like that. But uh, as much as it, you don't hear that kind of talk as much these days, maybe it's just because cable news is not as, as popular as Larry King used to be. I, I don't know what it is. Um, inevitably, Inevitably, this conversation comes up in some capacity, whether it's on social media, whether it's on cable news, or whether it is uh, in your office and you're talking to someone. Inevitably, this conversation comes up. Uh, 
And then what ends up happening is, even though you don't, we, we wouldn't necessarily like the way Jerry Falwell said that, the, the response kind of ends up being like this, at least around the, the water cooler. I don't know that I'd say it like, like Jerry Falwell did. Uh, maybe they aren't, you know, the, the ACLU isn't directly responsible for the towers being uh, knocked down. But, you know, he does have a point. God is not mocked, and we are reaping what we've sown as a country. And Falwell was controversial, but I'll tell you this. Falwell was also smart. He knows that a statement like this, uh, even though it would make many hate him, uh, it was also really good for his brand. That statement is right on brand for the kind of things that he would do uh, in, in, in building up enemies in order to garner support. This is, this is, so, so what you see happening in politics today, like that is an old playbook that has just been refined and made more efficient and more ruthless today than it used to be. Uh, but it's the same, it's the same playbook. Like it, it, just, it just happens. And, and honestly, Falwell is just, just honest enough to say what so many, at least to some degree, were thinking. So what about us? How, how do we interpret something like that? What do we do with a statement like that? If somebody says, hey, do you agree with what he has to say? What do we do? With, how, do how do we make sense of disasters and calamities? What about the ones that are man-made like 9-11? And what about the ones that are, that are the, the, the acts of nature that are, uh, we would say, we attribute them to, 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 at least under God's sovereignty, hurricanes and tornadoes and floods? This is no passing question for us. In fact, I'd argue the answer to this question might be the single most consistent way to have an evangelistic conversation uh, in, in your life. It might be the, the, one of two or three uh, most consistent windows for you to be able to speak into the nature and, and the person of God. And so this is not just an idle question for us to, uh, to work through. Because natural disasters and large-scale tragedies and calamities, they are not going away. They're not going anywhere. And so the question is, should we answer, like Reverend Falwell here, is he right? And if he's wrong, like to what degree is he wrong? Would you say, well, he may not be right, but he's not, he's not fully off base here. And I'll just be honest, I think that's probably, probably where the default thinking is for for most of Christian America to say, I don't know if he's right, but uh, I also don't know how, how wrong he is. And so the, 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 the answer to that question, was he right, might be more complicated than you think it is, but uh, the answer that Jesus gives to, to this type of thing uh, is beautiful in its results. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're in Luke 13. We're back in our series, Jesus for Everyone. And we're picking up right where we left off back in Luke 12, right before Thanksgiving. I'm sure you all remember exactly where we were in Luke 12, right before Thanksgiving. Uh, if, you, if you open up to Luke 12 very quickly and you scan your eyes over it, what you'll remember is Jesus is right in the middle. So we took a break right in the middle of a long section of teaching from Jesus. I didn't plan that. That's just how it happened. Uh, and so we're, we're right in the middle of it. And what he talks about all throughout Luke 12, if, if you'll remember, is, is knowing the time. 
knowing the time, being aware of the time that we have and being wise in how we approach our lives. And so he talks about judgment. He talks about the, the, the judgment of fire and Jesus having fire in his eyes. He talks about uh, the very last analogy that he, that he talked about was uh, to, to make sure that you have settled your accounts with, the, with, uh, with your accuser before you go before the judge because if you can settle up, it has a better chance of going well for you. Don't wait until the moment of judgment to settle your accounts. And the, the whole thing directed primarily at the nation of Israel is that they have a, a, an account they need to settle even if they don't realize that that is the case. And so that, that's all of Luke 12. Heavy on judgment, heavy on fire, heavy on, on, on giving account before God. And then we get to Luke chapter 13, and this is... Uh, really kind of a continuation of, uh, of that thought. So while it may have been good for us if we could have like kept all this together in one big unit, I think it's actually good for us to, to pull back out of Luke 12 and remember the flow of the story Luke is telling. Remember, this is, this is, this is something that we pointed out a lot in the early days of Luke, and I've not said it quite as much here recently, but Luke is not just recounting a bunch of random historical facts for us. He is telling a story about this guy, Jesus. He's telling a story about what he came to do and the lessons that he came to teach. And so he's, he's continuing this theme of this part of his story, which is, which is pulling from Jesus' teaching all about, uh, all about judgment. So let's jump into Luke 13, verse 1. And let's see uh, how this, this long section of teaching continues here for Jesus. Luke 13, verse 1. At that time, some people came and reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. All right, we're going to stop there. We're going to, we're going to start and stop quite a bit here to, to start with. So, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus gets interrupted in his monologue of teaching a couple of different times. And now here in Luke 13, he gets interrupted again. And so his monologue is really kind of shifting to become uh, a dialogue. He's now moving into a little bit of conversation with those that are, uh, that are around him. And essentially, uh, as he's as judgment, it has prompted to be shared with him. Now, we don't know exactly if this is like, like immediate news and somebody has come sprinting into town with this news because it's a big deal, or if, if his talking about judgment made somebody be like, oh, hey, did you hear about what happened? Did you, did you hear about what happened at the temple? So we're not exactly sure how it, it, it comes up because it just says some people showed up and reported this uh, to, to Jesus. And, and so it kind, of, it kind of feels to me like, like somebody saying, funny you should mention God's judgment. Did you hear what happened? And so Jesus gets this news about uh, about the, the Pilate uh, having, having massacred some people. And so um, we, could, we could talk a lot about, about what, what happens here, but, but basically Jesus learns about what's on the front page of like the, the Jerusalem Times. It's like the top, twi- the, the, the top trending item on Twitter in Israel is this story. This has just come out. And I, I don't want to spend too much time on this news story because it's, it's not really the point. We don't need to know the exact details of what happened, as we'll see here in just a minute. Um, but, but essentially, there had been a, a mass casualty event in Jerusalem, likely at the temple, and it was, it was targeted 
at a group of, of Galilean Jews that were there in the temple. And there, there might be an obscure reference to this in Acts 5, but we don't really know. It would be pure conjecture to say that that's what it is talking about. It, it doesn't really matter. It does, it, we're not sure if this is, is Passover. We're not sure if they were worshiping and offering a sacrifice or if they were maybe like troublemakers that, were, that stirred something up in Jerusalem and then they ran into the temple to hide and kind of escape uh, prosecution in there. We, we don't really know. I think you can probably assume that they were worshipers, but we don't know that for sure. Jesus is not really interested in, 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 in hashing out the details uh, for us. It, it doesn't really matter because the end result is the same. By the time it was over, their blood was indistinguishable from the blood of the animals that were sacrificed. Now, if you spend any time in the book of Leviticus, this is where if, you, if you're doing like a, a year, the Bible in a year, and you get into the book of Leviticus and you're like struggling, it's probably about, if you're doing Bible, it's probably about where you are right now, reading the book of Leviticus. And here's what you, like if you could summarize the book of Leviticus in one word, It'd be one of two words, either holy or blood. It's one of those two things. It's a lot of blood sacrifice that is happening there. And, and this is what's going on at the temple at the time. There is blood everywhere. And then these, 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 these worshipers, which is what I'm going to call them, I'm going to assume they were worshipers, uh, were there. And Pilate, for whatever reason, whether it's just to... to uh, it, to, to, to bring fear to, to the Jews, or maybe he, they had been caught doing something they shouldn't have done. Uh, they, he decides that he's going to make an example out of them, and they are slaughtered at the altar. It's a lot of blood. It was brutal, and it was a massacre by Pilate's men in the temple of all places. Now, there's a ton of of subtext that we could talk about there, about the nature of religious uh, persecution that was happening and, and, and about the nature of evil and all kinds of stuff we could bring up. Uh, and there's also a lot that we could talk about Jewish theology at the time. But here's the main thing that you, uh, that you need to know about Jewish theology. It's going to set the, the stage for these next, uh, these next few verses. Generally speaking, in Jewish theology at the time, they did not believe that bad things happened to good people. They did not believe that that is, uh, like they didn't really have a, a category for that. If you were suffering or if something bad happened to you, then you did something to deserve it. You did something to earn it. And I'm not talking about from like, a, are you righteous or not righteous? I, I am saying I am saying the, the type of life that you have, the level of suffering that you endure, the type of calamity that comes upon you, like those things happen as a result of who you are before God. That is what they would teach, okay? And it's very important for what's going to come for uh, the rest of this. We see this whenever uh, the, 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 the Jesus is asked, whenever they come upon a, he and his disciples come upon a blind man, he's asked, who sent this man's parents or him that made him blind? And Jesus is like, you guys have, ter ter you guys have terrible theology. And so that's basically what Jesus is about to do is kind of correct that theology just a little bit. But it's the, it's the underlying question of these men that were slaughtered in the temple. What did they do to deserve it? What kind of sin brought them to their brutal end? 
even if it were sinful people that delivered the blow, what did they do that brought them to their end? What did they do to deserve it? So with that background, he's just finished talking about justice and judgment, and then this is front page news. And so people tell Jesus this news, and they want to see what Jesus is going to say about it. So let's see if Jesus signs off on this kind of theology that, that, that bad things don't happen to good people. <clears throat> Luke 13, 2. And he responded to them, Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? So Jesus just straight, just goes right for their theology and says, Do you really think this is, is, is happening for this reason? Do you think that's why they're dead? That they're worse than other Galileans? There's a lot of Galilean Jews. Are you sure that these guys are the worst? I mean, there's a lot of Galileans that have done bad things, and these guys were in the temple. Surely, if they were in the temple worshiping, then they're not the worst Galileans that are out there. Think about your theology, guys. It's illogical for you to think this way. And their response would have essentially been, well, we know that they were killed in this horrible way. Therefore, they had to be bad. Even if outwardly they were good, they had to be bad. It's circular reasoning, and it's bad theology. It's kind of like how they used to do uh, a, a witch trial back in the day. I don't know if you guys have ever uh, read much about this, but the way they would determine if somebody was a witch is they would bind them to like a, a broomstick like underneath their legs or, 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 or bind them to a chair, and then they would like chuck them in the lake. And if they, if, they, if they floated, then they knew that it was a witch. But if they sank, they were like, oh, turns out she wasn't a witch. But she's dead. So it doesn't really matter now. Like that, that is how you would determine if somebody was a witch or not. So, so either way, if you made it to the place where you were bound to the chair and getting chucked in the lake, you, you, this was not going to end well for you either way. And it's the same kind of like circular reasoning. That it doesn't make any sense that this is, uh, that this is how they would, uh, they would a- approach this. It's illogical uh, thinking, but, but the heart of most of the theology at the time. And it sounds an awful lot like Mr. Falwell from just a few minutes ago. This idea that the level of sinfulness dictates the level of suffering you endure. And so this, as much as we like to say that this is like Old Testament or, or, or Old Covenant thinking, it's still very prominent today. And I know it's from, from 2001, but it, you, you can find this anywhere on social media today, this exact kind of thinking. And so uh, th- th- this, th- it just, bad things happened, therefore bad people doing bad things must have been what caused it. And, I, and notice, Jesus doesn't even address the fact that the Romans were the one that did it. I mean, it would be the equivalent of the FBI, like, busting in here, killing half of us, walking away, and there being no moral outrage in the, louder, in the, uh, in the, 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 the wider culture, no repercussions. Um, and then whenever somebody asks Jesus about it, he, he, he doesn't even mention the ones who did the slaughtering. He just talks about the event and what happened. And so, uh, and, 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 and so you, you see this kind of thinking, and then it would be as if somebody asked another preacher somewhere and they said, you know what, 
what happened there at Providence, that's a terrible thing. But you know what? Some of their doctrine is this, and some of their doctrine is that, and, and, and they're going to reap what they sow, and God is not mocked. That would be the equivalent of what most people were expecting Jesus to say there. That their, their, their judgment was somehow brought, up, brought upon themselves because of the way they acted or the way they believed. But Jesus offers no opinion on the, on the culpability of Pilate and Pilate's men. He doesn't talk about that at all. And they're tying the judgment from chapter 12 now into chapter 13. But Jesus then goes on to recount another story that had been the talk of the town not too long ago. Well, look with me in verse 4. He brings up another news story. He says, Or those 18 that the Tower of Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? So Jesus brings up a second terrible, tragic event that had happened. This time, no moral quandary about about the, the acts of the government and who's at fault and who's to blame and sinful people did this to, to other people, so how does this all work? This is just, as best you can tell, a random tragedy. 18 people walking along, 18 people standing in the wrong spot, 18 people getting water from the well at the wrong time, the wrong place at the wrong time. Tower falls on them and they die. No one to blame but, but bad design. No, no moral evil accomplishing uh, this. Just bad luck. And Jesus says, by your theology, these that died must have been worse than all those that were standing on the outskirts of the wall who didn't have the tower fall on them. They died because somehow they deserved it. And so by virtue of the fact that they were standing in the wrong place at the wrong time, there are no accidents. God knows what he's doing. They died because they deserved it. That would be what the, the, the theology that prevailed at the time. It is baked in to, to Jewish theology. And what is baked in here is, is not just a, a, a little bit about suffering, but a lot about righteousness, specifically self-righteousness. You see, it is, it is baked into the theology that was so popular at the time. Where, where people are constantly putting down others in order to make themselves look better. And this is the, the, the way that the Pharisees did it at like a, like a varsity level, but it was often baked into much of it. So you see, the thing is, in order for you to say someone else deserved to die because of the level of sinfulness, you have to be alive to say that. And so you are subtly saying, I'm not that bad, but they must have been. Do you see like the self-righteousness that's kind of baked into the theology that they have there? Do you see how, how, how that works? And so, you know, this is the, the, the prayer from the Pharisees in, uh, in, in Luke chapter 18, whenever he says, uh, whenever he says, thank God that I'm, I'm not like that, 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 that sinner over there. Thank you that you've made me a Jew. Thank you that you've made me to know the law. Thank you that I'm so good and I'm not like this guy that is so bad. Thank you that I've been counted good enough not to have a tragedy befall me and my family like that. There is a sense that their lives are moving right because they've been doing right. And someone else must have got it wrong somewhere. And I just want to be completely honest here. It is easy to dismiss that theology 
uh, whenever you, you, you see it kind of framed uh, in this way. But Christian or not, I think most people live in some version of this theology. Some people call it karma. Some people kind of call it like the, you know, the universe gives back to you what you put in. Some people kind of c- call it different names. So Christian or not, I think most people, this is how they view the world. They would never say it out loud, but their way of thinking is that when other people live lives full of suffering and tragedy, they say things, sometimes out loud, or they say them to themselves, and they say things like, I hate that they're going through that. I know I couldn't live that way, or maybe I wouldn't live that way if it were me. I couldn't do it. I'd do something about it. Either I'd increase my faith, or my trust in God, or my work ethic, or this or that. I'd do something about it if that were me. And there's this subtle self-righteousness of, I'm sorry for them, but that could never be me. It's, it's just in there. It's just in there. It's somehow built into our culture as Americans, I think, that the, 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 the answer to all problems is if you work hard enough, you'll get to the good part of life. And there's a lot of good that can come from that idea, but that is not good theology. I'm telling you, I think that's the default mode of thinking for most people. That they've done too much, they've worked too hard, they've been too good to sit under the thumb of hard times and tragic moments. And Jesus exposes that kind of thinking for what it is. Self-righteous nonsense. Let me read the whole passage and then we'll, we'll really take in what Jesus wants us to see here. So Luke 13, 1 through 5. At that time, some people came and reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he responded to them, Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because uh, they suffered these things? Verse 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Now that does not sound like a very kind Jesus. Like, where's your compassion for these people, Jesus? But here's the thing. Jesus is not there. He's not dealing with anyone who's immediately connected to these tragedies. He's not speaking uh, in, in, in a way where he's there around where the tragedy happened and addressing it. He's addressing the crowd that is gathered to listen to him teach about the judgment of God. And he wants to make important thing that they could hear that morning. And so Jesus says all these things are tragedies. And in a broken world, tragedies will happen. And it has nothing to do with who is the most sinful or who is the most godly, either individually or collectively as a unit or a nation. It has everything to do with sin because this world has been broken by sin but nothing to do with sin rankings 
Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? It's nothing to do with like, like the amount that is piled into the bucket. It just has to do with the fact that that is the nature of what sin does. It breaks this world and it breaks us on some level. So Jesus tells us we do well to learn the lesson of the tower and of the massacre. That you too will die. And you have no idea when that will be. It says you will all perish as well. He's not, he, he, he's not, he's not saying you, you, you will never die otherwise. What he's saying is just like they died, like the, the, the worshipers went to the temple, thought it was going to be just another chance for them to offer a sacrifice, but they never came out of the temple. They went to the, the Tower of Siloam to get water out of the fountain, and they never made it home. And unless you understand who Jesus is and, and, and the, the, the right way to respond to the judgment of God, you will die just like them, having no idea when that will be. And that is the nature of tragedy. It is not on your calendar. And while that might provoke a sense of dread, you're like, come on, guys, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Can we not have a little bit of fun uh, this morning? Can we not do something? Jesus says that it shouldn't provoke a sense of dread, but a sense of urgency in our lives and in our hearts. That is what he draws us to. And he's continuing this theme. Know the time. Don't be misled by all the nonsense that is going on around you. So effectively, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, tell us your theology of suffering and tragedy. And he says, here's my theology of suffering and tragedy. You will suffer and you will experience tragedy. That's my theology. And you best be ready for it. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you are too good, too tough, too strong, too religious, too righteous to, to not undergo that you know that the the anytime something tragic or something difficult or prolonged suffering occurs human nature the natural human question that comes up is to ask why why is this happening to me why did it happen to him and i want to be clear those are not irrelevant questions those are, those are fair questions. And oftentimes, God is gracious, gracious to, to, to reveal some of those answers to us. You've heard me say before, quoting John Piper, but, but there's, there's, God may be doing 10,000 things at any one time, and we may be aware of three or four of them in any one single event. I think that that is very much true. But he is often gracious to give us a peek under the hood and to say, this is why this is happening. So, 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 so it, it's fair and it's good to ask the question, why? But why is not something that he ever promised to reveal to us. So, so, so whenever people are dealing with, 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 with suffering, you know, it, 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 is, it, is, it is good to ask the question, why? But what I usually try to, to tell myself and what I usually try to tell others is that, that, that why is, is a good question and a fair one. But it's not always one that we're going to find an answer to. And ultimately, it's far less important than other questions we can ask. And so, so why may be a good question, but a better question, I think, from what Jesus is teaching us here is, 
Now what? What do I do with this reality of suffering? Maybe he tells you why, maybe he doesn't tell you why, but, but a better question is, now what do I do with it? And I'm not saying there's not a space for grieving and for sitting in pain. There certainly is. The Psalms are full of people who, who do that, and that is exactly what they should be doing. There certainly is. But ultimately, the question becomes, what should this thing teach me about me? And what should I do with the reality of things like falling towers and suffering lives and wicked governments and any number of horrible things that this broken world can throw at us? So why is a good question, but it's not the ultimate question? Jesus says these tragedies shouldn't cause us to focus on the pain and the brokenness of this world, but on the ultimate reality of the world that is to come. The pain shouldn't mire us in this world's brokenness, but lift us into the longing and the hope of the next. And that source of hope, Jesus tells us here, begins in the process of repentance. Turning from sin, turning from dishonoring God, turning from self-righteousness, and acknowledging that we as sinners should, that, that, that we as sinners should, should probably not be asking, why did this tragedy happen to them? But in my sinfulness, why has it not come upon me? That's the point of this next little parable that Jesus tells us. Look with me in verse Six, and we're, we're quickly going to see how Jesus illustrates uh, this point he has just made. Luke chapter 13, verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard, and he came along looking for fruit on it and found none. And he told the vineyard worker, Listen, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, Sir, leave it in. Leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it, and perhaps it will produce fruit next year. But if not, then you can cut it down. So Jesus tells this story with the heart of a fig tree, or with, a, with, a tree with a fig tree at the heart of this uh, story. But make no mistake about it, this is not a story about proper gardening tex- techniques. He's not, he is not telling them, hey, you just, you just got to put a little fertilizer over here, and if you just kind of tend this and prune it over here, you'll be good to go. That is not the point in Jesus' story at all. Throughout the scriptures, a fig tree is used as a stand-in for Israel. It represents Israel in all kinds of different uh, stories. And so here in this story, Jesus is drawing out this tree that does not bear fruit. And ultimately, if there is no fruit, then the tree isn't doing what it was made to do. And so what Jesus is doing is he is addressing these Jewish people that are listening to him and he is drawing out of them uh, this, this idea that Israel too does not listen or respond to God's call. It, it is not bearing fruit. Israel is not bearing fruit. To which Jesus gives these landscaping tips and then says, keep an eye on it. It may yet bear fruit and if so, great. But if not, cut it down. So this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, in addition to Valentine's Day, uh, which, me, which marks the beginning of Lent and kind of begins the, 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 march, toward, uh, the march toward Easter and towards uh, Good Friday and the resurrection. And if you want to know what got Jesus killed, it's stories like this one. 
And we miss it because we think it's about a fig tree. But he's directly calling out Israel. And he's saying, if you don't repent, you're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And Israel says, oh, no, we're not. Have you not read your Old Testament? We are God's chosen people. We don't need to repent because he has blessed us and we are good to go. And then Jesus says, repent or you likewise will perish. Repent or you too will perish. And it's horribly offensive to them. It is horribly offensive to them because they do not see the need for uh, repentance or for grace. Like those categories just really aren't there. They just are God's people. Now, if you were truly my people, then you That's not at all how the Jewish people thought at the time. And it's what ended up getting him nailed to a cross under false pretenses drummed up by Jewish leaders. So Jesus says, do a few things. See what happens uh, whenever you do these few things. Maybe the tree begins to bear fruit. Maybe they will repent. I'm inclined to think that what he's basically talking about here is his own ministry and the little bit of time that he had left. Show them some grace for now. But there will come a time when they will have to give account. It's been the theme for chapter 12. He continues it here in chapter 13. But if they will not listen to Jesus, they have turned their back on their Messiah. And you can clear your vineyard and reclaim your soil from this tree that is dead and not coming back. It is a stunning call out of the Jewish people. And unfortunately, not one that most of them would heed. And so while Jesus' initial address here was to the Jewish people, the message of these two passages, I think, is clear for us today as well. Repentance is at the heart of our response to a broken world and our own sin that contributed to it. Repentance is the right response to tragedy. And so back to our video here that we started with, was Jerry Falwell right? If I've come full circle here and I've said repentance is the right response to a large-scale tragedy, is that what was happening in that video that we put up there? And in one sense, all tragedy is a result of sin, sometimes directly, sometimes not, but all all tragedy is a result of, of sin. And so who's to blame for, for 9-11? Well, the, the list is long and plentiful, but it all comes back to the reality of sin. From the sin of Adam to the, the, the sin of those in the plain and everything in between. He's kind of right, but not in the way that I think he wants to be right. You see, he, he's standing up and he's saying, all the sin of others is what brought all of this to this place. But I think what we have to be able to say is that all of my sin is what has brought brokenness into this world. And all of your sin is what has brought brokenness into this world. And so our first response is not to, not to cast blame, but to ask the question, okay, now what do we do with the reality of this brokenness? And that's the question Jesus tells us. You can't get this wrong. You can't mess this up in your theology. 
This world is hell-bent on keeping us from asking that question. What do we do now? It would rather us ask, why me? Why now? What's fair? What's wrong? Who do we blame? What else can we do? How do we distract ourselves? How do we think about other things? The, the world would push us into all of those things, a thousand other things for us to think about. Things like Super Bowls and, and all kinds of other things this world puts forward to say, these are the ultimate things for you to occupy your life with. But Jesus says when we see sin and the result of sin, so suffering, pain, tragedy, sorrow, when we, death, when we see those things, our response should be, okay, now what? Now what? What what do I do with this? And the first answer to that question is, give me Jesus. I want to know Jesus. So hear me, I I am not saying what the Jewish leaders would have said, which is if, there is if there is pain or suffering or death or tragedy in your life, you are to blame for that. Your own sin has brought that on you. What I am saying is that none of us escape from the reality of sin, both in its impacts on us, inflicted on us, and its impact as we are sinners. None of us escape from that. And Jesus' primary concern for us is not that we knock it out of the park theologically and say, this is why this happened. Look at my my, my, my nice, tidy uh, theology of suffering. Jesus' primary concern for us is that when we see brokenness and sin, we recognize our need for a Savior. We recognize our own need to be made whole. And we respond to say, God, I I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why this person is enduring this. I don't know why they are going through this. I don't know why this tragedy befell this person or this family. I don't know why. But here's what I do know. The same sin that brought that upon them is the same sin that I struggle with in my own life. And my first response is not to say, All of these things are the result. My first response is to say, I need Jesus. That brokenness in this world should not beget hopelessness, but should beget urgency to repent and to know Jesus. That is where it should drive us. And so the question doesn't doesn't sit in why, but moves to now what? What can I do? do in response to this and the only thing that can help us work through that fractured world is to be made whole by Jesus turn from our sin and follow him let's pray Father as we talk about things like like suffering as we talk about Uh, things like judgment, as we talk about these things that are heavy, difficult topics, I, I I, I pray that you would help us to see the words of Jesus and not to minimize all these other questions that that come around us to the point that we, we deem them irrelevant, but that we, we lift up the primary question of who do we find our hope in? 
in the midst of pain and suffering and, and tragedy and all of these things that will always surround us, will always be with us, where do we find our hope? And as much as we desperately want to know you, our answer is not in some tidy theological uh, answer that we can, we can pour out, but it is instead found in the person of Jesus. May we find our hope there and nowhere else. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.